One of the things that I really appreciate about the Desert Fathers and the way Merton introduced them is that their practice of solitude and silence was with the purpose to bring them into union with God. And through that union with God, they would become into union with their fellow man. Yeah, one thing I learned this weekend about the Desert Desert Fathers is... um, they were just people looking to build an authentic community where they could learn about God, where they could get closer to God outside of this culture who had um, devised levels of um, social being where these people didn't want to fit in. They wanted to go and experience God in a different way. One thing that I noticed was how seemingly ordinary they could be in their reactions to things um, and that we react similar in frustration or interacting with people. So the rule of life, it reminds me what I'm about. It brings me back to who I am. You know, I'm a child of God and he loves me and cares about me. I'm a lot of other things. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a, a worker. Uh, But the rule of life brings me back to the core of my being, of who I am as a spiritual being. Well, I'm thinking it's a season to do something new. Over the years, I've tried a lot of different things. The one thing that's always stuck with me is you recommended I say something, a prayer, whenever I hear a train whistle. And that stuck with me over the years. Off and on, I've done different types of Lexio. Sometimes I'll listen to a chapter in my car on the way. Sometimes I'll read something. It seems to always work better when there are other people involved, even if it's at a distance. The way that it works for me these days, and for the last 10 years, it has just been, it has grown in me uh, the desire, a stronger desire than ever, then I I want to have solitude with God. And it's the first thing that I seek in the morning, and I want to have silence. In the rule of life, I uh, saw a connection between desert practices. And uh, one of the stories that I came across was saying that just like fish need to return to the sea, so we need to return um, to retreat and to solitude in order to care for ourselves, um, you know, our interior selves. Um, And that's really spoken to my practice of life, of going on retreat, well, here we are in Lent, and there you see some people uh, on retreat actually talking about uh, their thoughts and contemplation about the Desert Father and a little thing called the Rule of Benedict. And so today we're going to talk about what is it like to create a rule of life and um, what gets us there and so forth, and then even some practical reasons about how we get there. I think Adam has been speaking the last couple of weeks about the wilderness And today we get uh, just into some practical tools, and we'll do that again next week as we talk about some spiritual disciplines during this season of Lent. So we begin with Scripture. So if you have your uh, Bible with you or you want to bring it up, Mark chapter 2. It's worth looking at because there's a lot of context here that I think is important, and I'll go over that. But Mark chapter, the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, verses 21 and 22 is our key passage But you'll want to look at the entire chapter of Mark 2, so you might want to bring that up. Here we go. Jesus is teaching. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth 
on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch will pull away from it and the new, uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Jesus goes on. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine in fresh wineskins. What an amazing teaching. Very interesting. Uh, it's clear, even in it's being 2,000 years old, it's clear and easy to understand. And even if you don't even have ever seen a wineskin or something like that, doesn't matter. I think we all get it. The context is everything, right? So Mark dives into the ministry of Jesus here in the beginning of his gospel, second chapter. He is off to the races, digging into it. And as you'll find in most all four gospels, you'll find in all four gospels, over and over, one of the major themes underlying is Jesus going up against the Pharisees, the religious authorities, the moralists of his days, very, very holy people. But they had a religious chokehold on the people about strict moralism. So earlier in the second chapter of Mark, Jesus heals a paralytic who is unexpectedly lowered down through the roof. They tear off the tiles and they lower him down. You've all probably heard this story. And so what happens, though, is interesting, even in its sequence, because first thing is, is that Jesus heals the man's, or forgives the man's sin. And, and the Pharisees respond, this Jesus speaks blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Then Jesus heals the man. I'm not even sure they were lowering him through the roof in order to have his sins forgiven. It's intriguing. I think they wanted him to be healed. And then the next thing in chapter 2, after the guy coming through the roof, is Jesus... Um, Jesus calls Levi. Levi is a tax collector who is identified as Matthew in Matthew's gospel, not in the other two gospels uh, and not in John. So Jesus sits down with Levi and eats with him. Big, big taboo. It's a big no-no for righteous Pharisees and rabbis and teachers and someone who's well-respected like Jesus to be eating with a tax collector. And when asked why Jesus is eating and drinking and carrying on like it's some sort of wedding reception, Jesus responds, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And on that day, they're going to fast. So he's building towards this here. And then Jesus teaches about this unshrunk cloth, sewn on old cloth, and putting new wine in old wineskins. What is Jesus' point? What's getting pounded away here in the second chapter of Mark? It is time for new cloth. It is time for new wineskins, Jesus says, and it is going to be new because I am here. I forgive sins. I, I heal the sick, and it is a party while I'm here. All things are new. Jesus is doing something brand new, and the old guard Pharisees do not understand and will not accept it. They are the old cloth and the old wineskins. What about you? in the season of Lent. What about you? Still living in the old wineskins? Sewing new patches of cloth on old garments with the tear and the pulling the way and the bursting of the wineskins and all the rest of it? How's your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you trapped? Are you in a rut? Are you paralyzed? Is everything going wonderful? Are you just logging time? 
Or, as the old business adage goes, are you doing the same exact thing expecting different results, which is the definition of insanity? Welcome to the church's season of Lent. It is a time for new wineskins. It is a time for new cloth. It is a time of fast. It is a time to reflect and contemplate on our relationship with Jesus. It is our moment, our seven weeks of introspection as we head towards the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. This is the time of the wilderness and the desert. This is the time to think about who we are and what life is all about and how spiritual things are going for us. So in this time of self-examination and reinvention, allow me to introduce and reinforce the time-tested idea of a rule of life. A rule of life. Every Christian needs a rule of life. You may not call it that, but that's what it is. It is a rule of life. The Christian life changes all the time. Whatever you were doing five years ago will not suffice today, probably. It needs updating. It needs thought about and reinventing. A rule of life gives shape to your spiritual life. Ruth Haley Barton writes in her book that a rule of life seeks to answer this one question. What do I want to live? How do I want to live? How do I want to live so I can be who I want to be? How do I want to live so I can be who I want to be? Now, if you're paying attention here for a moment, you'll kind of realize there's a real irony going on here because on one hand, I'm saying it's time for new wineskins and I'm saying like, hey, everybody do a rule and put it all like in a framework. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very wineskin to me. You know, that sounds like we're just coming up with a bunch of rules and regs. So this is absolutely counterintuitive to our culture's infatuation with the worship of the new and improved. We think that in order to do something new and spiritual, we would want to do something flashy and cool and, and undone and never, I mean, ever, we've never done it before. But the simple truth is, is that in order to reinvent one's spiritual life, you create a framework and you walk in a structure and in a rule. It is no different than if you wanted to run a marathon. You don't go and, you know, read some poetry. You get down and you practice. We love new and improved. We are attracted by the flashy. We are attracted by those things that come at us. We, in other words, are not disciplined. Case in point, I did not want a new 2021 Ford Bronco Black Diamond Edition until I saw an advertisement for a 2021 Ford Bronco Black Diamond Edition SUV. Now, I cannot live without one. I obsess about it. I am trying to figure out how to manipulate my family and our finances so I can get one. It consumes me day and night. Okay, maybe yours isn't a Ford Bronco. Who cares? You did not want Gates' short-end ribs until the preacher mentions Gates' short-end ribs. And along with those hot, steamy fries that you can barely touch, dipped in the hot and spicy sauce to wash it down with the red cream soda. Did you get onion rings? Because they're also so hot and delicious. 
you are triggered by the mere words of beef on bun. And if that's not enough, let's just go for the juggler. Hi, may I help you? And now I know what you're doing for lunch. You did not want it until it gets mentioned, and we are obsessed by the flashy and the new. My daughter Mia once exclaimed when she was about five or six, and we were sitting on the couch and eating popcorn watching the Chiefs game, and she said, Daddy, I like advertisements because they tell me what I want. And there was much rejoicing on Wall Street. We do well not to be attracted to the flashy, but to consider the words of G.K. Chesterton so long ago when Chesterton said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as much as it has been found difficult and untried. Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as much as Christianity has been found difficult and and untried. It is a challenge to live the Christian life. It's not something you drift into. The desert fathers and mothers... Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, lived by a rule of life. They invented it. For the first several hundred years of the church, Christians lived by rules. I know we all tend to think of the early church as like the book of Acts and all that cool stuff and everyone sharing and all that sort of thing. And they had a liturgy, of course, they had some rules. But what happens after that? What happened after that is that the world was going to hell in its proverbial handbasket, and Christians were fleeing it. Remember, Christianity was illegal, and the world was sinful. And Christians fled to the desert. And when they got out into the desert, they had escaped the sins of the world, and guess what they are left with? Themselves. And that was the real challenge. And so they created a structure around their life, a rule of life. They created a rule. This is about the 4th century A.D. that I'm talking about. At the time, and for the next three, 400 years, over 30 different rules were, were created. The one that wins them all out is this little red book here called The Rule of Benedict. The rule of Benedict is the rule that monasteries, Benedictine monasteries, follow. This structures the life of monks and sisters, brothers and sisters, in monastic communities. This is what it's come down to. It is the one that's time-tested. It's one of the oldest documents in Western civilization, and for that matter, Eastern. Benedict is the abbot of a a bunch of monks in Monte Cassino in Italy in around the 7th century. That's when this is written. And he scribes down his rule about how a monk should conduct themselves and how they should live. It is even down to the details of how many garments you will own, what time of day you will eat, and then more importantly, that you will do the Psalms, recite the Psalms seven times a day with your brothers or sisters. This is how one conducts themselves in a book like this. Now, the Bible was the desert fathers and mothers and the monks' final authority. It is the the scriptures inspired. And much of the rule aligns with the biblical teachings, but it's not scripture. So to sum up what's in here, there are three major values 
that drive uh, a rule of life, especially for this sort of monastic community. The first one being stability. The second one being ongoing conversion, or what in the Latin is called conversatio, because we always think of conversion as someone being saved, you know, like Paul getting knocked off his stallion, so to speak, on the road to Damascus. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about conversion as in a present participle of speech. It's ongoing and present. And then lastly is obedience. So stability says this. Stability just simply is this. Stay in the place where you are. Do not leave the place where you are too quickly. Much of spiritual transformation happens by sticking it out through the thick and the thin. If you don't like a church, you stick it out. If you don't like a discipline, you stick it out. If there are many things in life where sticking it out is where the best lesson is found. I'm not saying it all turns out great. I'm just simply saying that is where the lesson is learned. Our culture hates that. If you don't like something, you change it out like throwing out your old running shoes and getting some new ones. Stability. Stay where you are. Don't leave the place where you are too quickly. Watch for God to show up. The best life lessons are found in those narrow moments of uncertainty and difficulty. That's when we learn. And then conversion. Conversion means we never arrive, but we're in this ongoing conversion, this dynamic, fluid, spiritual shaping that goes on. No one ever achieves perfection, okay, in their spiritual life. Now, this is great, and the Calvinist all just said amen, because for Calvinists, when we're talking about ongoing spiritual transformation, we're talking about sanctification. And if you're talking about getting saved, you're talking about your justification. Now, for all your Armenians in the world around here in the audience, then you're also saying, so sanctification is actually your complete salvation and justification is the ongoing process of transformation. You guys get together and work that out because that's highly confusing to me. (laughs) Conversion is an ongoing process of never arriving. No wonder we use the language of journey and pilgrimage when it comes to spirituality. Of course, the danger is that you think, you're working out your salvation and that you're never saved until you reach more moral perfection. That was the problem of the Pharisees. And it can be a problem for Christians. Third, then, is the value of obedience. Without obedience, there is no chance to be Christ in the life you already have. Without obedience, it is impossible to achieve to be Christ in the life you already have. Spirituality, therefore, is not about the next sensational workshop or conference or class. It is not about finding something buzzy, the newest worship band or anything like that. That is not what's transformational. It is putting one foot in front of another for a long time. As Eugene Peterson once quoted said this, Spirituality is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Now, this little red book, The Rule of St. Benedict, it's 73 chapters long. The language is ancient, so you're often quirky and kind of scratching your head like, what? But it is categorized as a piece of wisdom literature. It's not scripture. It's not in the canon of the, the Bible. But the rule of Benedict is what Christians did when the world was going to hell in the handbasket, as I said. 
So with instability and ongoing conversion and obedience, the rules set down the rhythm, rhythms of praying throughout the day, and they prayed the cries of the soul, that is, the Psalms. The Psalms are our prayer book. They've been so for thousands of years. They prayed seven times a day. They prayed out loud in community. You're like, oh, wait, I thought they were monks and hermits and stuff like that. Yes, they were. Some were. Others were in community. But throughout the day, these hermits, these monks would come together for prayer. They kept silent oftentimes all the rest of the time. They would sing the psalms. And as you and I so very well know, you can memorize easily if you sing things. If you just try to bare bones memorize stuff, it's difficult. But with a tune, especially a simple tune, you can memorize just about anything. Right? It just goes that way. And this is how they shaped their life. This rule told them how to get along. And it shaped their community into a people unexpected to them in my studies, unexpected to them, what they got shaped into were people who were humble and compassionate for each other and the world outside of them. They became people who no longer judged somebody else. In the monastic world, these people became the people all of us always wanted to be and were able to go back out into the world and be the, the, be Christ to the world around them. They were socially equal. No one owned anything. They all had to work, but they did not work for money. They worked to care for each other. The rule did away with aimless leisure and instead brought a sense of contemplation, and they contemplated the world as God sees it. They gained spiritual eyesight for the world as they thought about God in their solitude and silence and fasts and so forth. The rule of Benedict was the daily working out of the teachings of Jesus in the first centuries or so. If you want to know what happened after the Gospels and after the book of Acts, it looks like a rule of life and in various rules. This is what the first Christianity, the first century looked like, the first millennia of the, of the church looked like. <clears throat> Monastic scholar Joan Chittister states, the rule of Benedict saved Christian Europe from the Dark Ages that was bent on its own destruction. Perhaps the greatest contribution of the 4th century desert spirituality was its concept of how to compassionately love your neighbor as yourself, which is sadly missing these days. How to love your neighbor as yourself. As Henry Nouwen explains it, he says this, Let us not underestimate how hard it is to be compassionate. Compassion is hard because it requires the inner disposition to go with others to the place where they are weak and vulnerable, lonely, and broken. Now and goes on. If you were to ask a desert father or mother why solitude and silence and fasting and living by a rule gives birth to compassion, they would say, because it makes us die to our neighbor. To die to our neighbors means to stop judging them, to stop evaluating them, and thus become free to be compassionate. It is judgment that kills compassion. This Lent, 
in this year, I see hardly a trace of compassion still within our politically polarized nation. A people who have everything are still judging each other. And instead of measuring our success of love by our weakest members of society, we look at each other's strongest members and then try to bring them down and subdue them and force them to think like we do and thus win by making people do what they don't want to do. This Lent, as we march toward Easter, we travel through a valley of darkness, the valley of the crucifixion, where an innocent man is beaten and nailed to a Christ who cries out on that very cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do when they knew exactly what they were doing. And he breathes his last for our sake, for the world's sake. Let us not forget that the people you may very well most disdain in this world at this very hour are the very people you may spend eternity with. To judge another person is to kill them. And that's what Jesus said. If you call your brother or sister a fool, you have murdered them. Therefore, as I've said over the years, probably the most easy and accessible measurement of one's spiritual progress is to hold no opinion of another, is to stop judging. And that's what turns us into compassionate people. This is not to say we don't stand up for righteousness' sake when evil is afoot, but it does mean that you see people The way Jesus sees people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To die to your neighbor takes more than good intentions. It takes practice, and that's why I'm selling a rule of life. The spiritual life is practiced, or it's nothing. A rule can be designed, then, in three time frames. These are very simple and straight ahead. You can do it daily, you can do it weekly, and you can do it seasonally. Think of it as you design a rule of life. What would I do? Well, daily. Daily is what the original Christians did best. Daily, they ate together. They read the scriptures together. They worshiped together. That's in the book of Acts. It's on in with the monastic communities of the desert fathers and mothers. The Psalms was the recitation of scripture. This was not a vain repetition of uh, but spiritual training. They felt like they were athletes and they were working towards something. They wanted to replace their carnal thoughts with the thoughts of God. This was neural imprinting. If you hear the word of God long enough, sooner or later you think scripture. You bow to God and neighbor. How's your daily rule coming along? Do you have a design where scripture or anything is filtering into your mind where your your neural imprinting is going on? Second time frame is weekly. This is the social one, in my opinion. The weekly gathering, you're doing it right now. Good job. You guys just all got, you know, high marks for the day. It's your small group. It's your Bible study. It's your breakfast club. It's your evening talk. It's your Zoom call. It's whatever it is. But you're gathering together with other people for encouragement and sharing and bringing yourselves along together. Weekly, you know, we do not forsake our gathering together. 
And then what about seasonal? Well, that's why I'm up here, because it's the season of Lent. And that's why Adam's been preaching this, and this is why I'm preaching this. It's the season of Lent. We are living in, in a year-long life of Jesus cycle in the church. And it begins with Advent. And then it goes to Christmas, and then it goes to this little epiphany on January 6th. And then we go into the first ordinary time, and then we go into Lent, like we're in right now. And we get to Holy Week, and we go to Easter, and then we march towards Pentecost, where the Spirit comes upon the church, and we're all commissioned and called. And we go back into ordinary time, which ordinary time means, I love it that it's ordinary time, because it just means we are living out our ordinary Christian life as extraordinary human beings. That's what's changing the world. That's where the work gets done. So that's the seasonal one. If you don't do the seasonal one, it, it always disturbs me because, you know, you, you, don't ex, you don't participate in Lent and then you expect to have some sort of joy on Easter. It's those that actually did the fast during Lent who rejoiced the most on Easter morning. There is no party, you know, without the uh, making ready for it. So for a daily rhythm, I suggest you use your smartphone. Your smartphone, far from being the bane of society, you know, is some sort of evil thing from the devil. Instead, your smartphone is your best tool. Set an alarm when you should pray. If it goes off and you're in the middle of a conversation at work, to, as Thomas Merton said, to think to pray is to pray. You had the thought. There's my alarm. It's prayer time. I don't get to. You just prayed. Get it? Or if you have a place where you can actually do it, the alarm goes off, you open an app like the breviary.com or universedallas.com or even just uh, you know, any Lifeway Bible or Bible Gateway or any scripture thing, and you just read the psalm, the next one that comes up. Maybe you listen to a song at that point, some worship music, or your favorite artist. Get the song memorized especially if the, script, if the words are good and they're scriptural. So use that. That's your daily throughout the day thing. And that's how we can imitate the desert tradition of praying seven times a day. You can set it for whatever times you need. It comes unbidden and therefore disturbs you. And when your alarm goes off, you say, I was not thinking about God. That is a win. Because now you are. You just succeeded. Weekly, go to church, connect with others. Seasonal, live out the, the church calendar. I knew that you guys had served my children well when they said, I get it. Advent, Christmas, this Epiphany thing, Lent, Easter. And then she said, what's next? I said, ding, 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 when? They got it. The life of Jesus in an entire year, church. You guys did well. She knows the gospel because of you guys. Good stuff. Well, today is the day of salvation. You're thinking, like, man, I haven't been doing anything for Lynn. I didn't get this hell thing together. I was supposed to get my stuff together. I didn't do it. I feel bad. Uh, you know Martin Luther from, like, 16th century, the guy for the Reformation? He was an Augustinian monk. 
And uh, he got about six months behind in his uh, prayers that he was supposed to be doing these prayers like throughout the day. He thought he was supposed to do makeup homework and get them all done. And every day that he didn't do them, he got further and further behind. So guess what he did? He threw out monasticism because he couldn't keep up with the prayers. Martin, dude, just start today. Erase the past. It's okay, man. You're missing the point. You don't get credit for doing the volume. It's neural imprinting. Whatever. So he didn't get it. And sometimes we don't either. Today, today, what if Zacchaeus had said, what if, what if Zacchaeus had said, no, nah, there's no point in me climbing the sycamore tree and trying to get a look at Jesus. You know, I've been a sinner for so long. I've been a tax collector and ripping people off and everything like that. There's no hope for me. Nah, I'm not even going to try. Now is the time. Start something. We follow a timeless savior, savior who is softly and tenderly calling. Calling for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Begin today. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can begin any moment, any day, no matter how much you lapse. That's Jesus. May we not be found wandering aimless when Jesus calls. Lord, we come into your presence. We come to your feet. We come to the foot of the cross. Not even worthy enough to raise our eyes toward you. Washed in your blood. Forgiven and reconciled to the Father. May we be those kind of people who work towards not judging others. Who are free from judgment to be compassionate, and to be Jesus in the one lifetime you have given us. May we be those people. In the name of Christ, we come and we will go out. And we all said, Amen. Amen.